Well, welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and as always, it's a real pleasure to have your company. Uh, today, we're going to dig a bit deeper into the um, critical situation in the reviewing business of critical case reviews, child deaths, injuries, and so forth. They always make the headlines when there's a big drama, but plenty more actually go on and plenty of very capable professionals to actually conduct them are needed. And many of them come from where my guest works. And my guest is Donna Odahar, and she's the head of SILP, which she will explain to you in a moment. Donna, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me, David. Okay. Well, look, let's get that out of the way if we can, just very quickly. Could you, um, SILP, what, what, what does it stand for? So it's Significant Incident Learning Process. Oh, right. Good. Well, I think essentially you've employed and actually kind of taken on your company, like, what, hundreds of reviews, would you say? Yeah, so it's over 200 reviews now since 2009. Brief. Um, right. right which is more than I ever expected to say. I only ever intended to be a single independent reviewer. Yeah. Well, let's uh, have a look then at the journey to that independent reviewer. Well, I mean, your original career was not in this, was it? Well, could you explain a little bit about and then why you changed? Sure. Well, I qualified as a solicitor, and I always thought that I wanted to be a criminal solicitor, criminal lawyer, and... I tried different things, particularly within a local authority. And I soon realized that, you know, where I really felt my place was, was within child protection. And I was so young then. I was, I was an idealist, David, and everything seemed a lot more black and white in those days. You know, I hadn't had a family of my own. And it was really cut and dried to me that, you know, what I was doing was making a huge difference in the world. So I had many, many great years. And, you know, my, I loved being in court. Um, so, yeah, if there was an emergency protection order that needed to be taken out, I, was, I had my hand up in that team, if you know what I mean, David. Oh, lovely enthusiasm. That's what I was. Yeah. <laughs> I was such an idealist. And then I got to do some adult protection work, which is court of protection and nearest relative. And I thought, you know, I'm really clear that this is the work that I want to do. Mm-hmm. And then Ooh. came... The AC, do you remember the ACPC? And then that was replaced by safeguarding boards. Mm-hmm. I was just so excited. For people listening, because there's also people abroad uh, around the world, ACPC is the Area Child Protection Committees um, made yes. up of um, the several agencies, police, health, et cetera, et cetera, social services that were involved. Sorry, sorry, Don, I just thought I'd better shove that in. Thank you. Well, it's an acronym. I'm just floating out those acronyms Ah, there. But it seemed like such an exciting opportunity, you know, and I was there in those early days of safeguarding boards with, you know, all that idealism again. Yes, yes. And I guess that what happened was as I became more and more senior in the organisation, my role changed and it was far more political. So I was having much more contact with councillors, with elected members, 
And it took me, I guess what many people who get senior say is it took me away from the coal face of where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also gave me these huge insights. And I think kind of if I could boil it down to sort of two light bulbs that went off, one was, you know, in all my contact with the political system, I was thinking, why why is the democratic process at the highest level not accountable for social care in the way that it is for some other areas? So to, to, to bring that forward into where we are now in 2022, we have an elected mayor, for instance, for the West Midlands where I live. Mm-hmm. And that accountability doesn't link through to the highest level for social care. It's almost like it's lower social care takes a lower priority. So I guess that came through for me. And then the other thing that came through, David, I just saw that leaders were constantly juggling priorities. They had to make a decision between X and Y as a priority. And I could just see that these reviews had the power to change those priorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very very sort of um, pivotal, I think, in, in many, many, many authorities, um, yeah. change coming from reviews. Absolutely yeah. agree with you there. Yeah, yeah. So it felt like it felt like the the change could be sector led, and that was an exciting opportunity rather than top down. Okay. So right. all this all this kind of <laughs> came together, and that's where I just knew I wanted to be an independent reviewer. Okay. Now, tell me, take me through that. Okay. So you decided, and you did it. All right. Just. Uh, However, it probably was um, not exactly as straightforward as that. But anyway, there you are, conducting child safeguarding practice reviews, safeguarding adult reviews, and domestic homicide reviews. So um, what happened after that? How long did you do that? (laughs) So this is back to, I mean, we all know this story. Most of us who left an organisation and then we're there on our own, you know, in a, in a room of our house, which is mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Where's, where's all the IT support gone, you know? It's, kind of like, it's an interesting dynamic, but also the, the commissions were flooding in. And I didn't want to leave that commission. I didn't want to leave that board or partnership high and dry. I wanted to be able to recommend them to some somebody good um, because okay. I was so I, I was so idealistic about, how this review should look you know back back in 2009 we were in those offset days and these panel meetings were conducted behind closed doors it was more of a paper exercise and then it was all about having this polished final report that offset would give a grading to (laughs) i just thought this can be better okay so So where are the front lines you, well, you are, aren't you? I mean, effectively, I mean, and quite a lot rests on you and the people in your organization's kind of um, judgment. Um, it's, I mean, essentially, you, I'm gathered, you gathered people together, right? I'm, I'm guessing that, yeah, uh, in terms of actually considering yeah. the, the, the actual demand. And, and, and it wasn't too difficult at first to gather people. Was that fair? Absolutely. It wasn't difficult to gather people, although at first it would be people I kind of knew who came along and trained to, to do this method, to, you know, understand and be able to offer this methodology. Mm. We, we, you know, we attached a trademark to it and 
you know, it was more people that I knew and trusted. And then it came that people actually wanted to apply to do it. Mm. Um, and where we stand currently is that 71 people are tri- silk trained. I have big ambitions about what, what would happen to that. I hope will happen to that number, but, and I'll tell you the reasons why, but yeah, I, I feel really proud of that. Obviously, you should. I mean, if, if, if you've developed it, and as far as I'm aware, you've also got a good reputation. I mean, I think essentially that means that um, you, you succeeded in actually illustrating that there was a big gap in provision. There was a big gap in provision, and there were people who could see that it could look a lot better. You know, it could look a lot better than all these strategists sitting in a kind of darkened room, mm. not speaking to the front line, you know, not in, not engaging in the way that we, we now do with families. It just, it just really needed a big shake-up. And um, I, I love to see that, you know, most reviews involve families, most reviews involve the practitioner now. Because at the time, David, we were thought of as, you know, this was experimental. There were all these data protection c- considerations it couldn't be done you know we couldn't have the front line there we couldn't share all this material well let's see let's see how you move let's see how you move to walk past that then because the next part really is to talk about your the model you've been talking about the silk model yeah um i mean so i mean why is it different it's different because it's engaging we want to involve a lot more people in the review um it's different because we th- there's an emphasis more on speaking than a lot of written outputs and material. And it's different because we don't solely have a deficit focus. So it's not only about what went wrong. It's about learning from the standard practice that, that actually we must repeat in future, good practice that we need to hold on to and apply in more circumstances. It's about learning from the range of activity instead of this deficit focus that we see reported on in the media, David. No, media. Media, you're straying into my kind of big kind of complaint area. But um, Or, or no, it, my, my um, enthusiasm for change. How's that? Is that more positive? I think, well, that, I think that's more accurate from when I see your material. I think it is Yeah, I know. I know, positive. but I just, sometimes you get a bit frustrated, don't you? Yeah, um, we do. But anyway, so tell me about, you know, you're, you think, I believe you remember, we remember talking about this and you said you were a mutual interest in this as well. I mean, what, what kind of experiences have you actually had or seen that concerned you? Um, okay. So my personal experiences are quite limited. I, you know, in, the, in an organisation, I had um, the support of, a team you know the, there is the public mm-hmm. relations team isn't there in no. any organization and it was quite a staged um exposure mm-hmm. to the media because mm-hmm. you were given a statement and that was that was what you did um but having left an organization now and tracked through i mean you and i david recently were involved in a joint um activity where we looked through 20 years of change didn't we and we looked mm-hmm. at the headlines mm-hmm. Um, and we looked at, you know, the change that these high profile cases create. But I guess that when I go into an organization, I can tell straight away how the leaders have reacted. Yeah. So have they come straight in with, 
trying to come in with a set piece solution? Are they tr- have they come straight in with these statements about compliance, or have they, you know, spoken to their front line about how to develop their skills or how to create the right conditions for the front line? Have they understood? Um, yeah, the front, getting <laughs> up the front line is so important, and you can tell straight away what's happened as you walk in. I know, I'm, 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 I'm laughing through total agreement with you. Okay, I, um, I, I, I was a few years ago. I was invited to New York to give a, a seminar online and to a, an audience as well on um, crisis management of the media. Okay, and um, you know, I still believe today, even though the, the landscape's changed quite a bit, that the same, the same principles apply uh, in terms of managing the media and coming out with a pre-done script and nothing else is not part of the uh, plan, I would suggest. Um, you've actually okay. got to look at all what we, you know, this is for another day, but I think, you know, I, I do understand the situation and think that there are Solutions that just that don't hide the truth. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So mm. this this set piece solution it's it's just a, a small part of a of a huge picture, and the way the organisation contracts, then the way the media um, covers it. You know, you've got that pendulum swing. So at the start, the convictions are being reported on. And it's kind of black and white. The parents are solely responsible. They're monsters. They use these words that, mm-hmm. you know, safeguarding professionals aren't even f- familiar with referring to families in that way. And then the pendulum swings, doesn't it, when it comes through to um, reporting on the review outcomes? Because, of course, then <laughs> professionals, it's black and white. The professionals are to blame now. Um, it's oh, the same yes. set of facts, but we're going to blame a completely set, different group of individuals. Do you know that's we- our problem? I, I mean, I, I mean, I mean that nicely, but it, it really is our one that hasn't had a total solution yet. The, the kind of um, us being sort of like in aspect or in amber, you know, like kind of um, as a profession with, with this damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of surround, okay. you know. Somehow we're going, to, we're going to break out of that, I think, somehow, because um, it, it's a bit sort of self-perpetuating in terms of public opinion and in terms of our sometime inability, I think, to um, fully represent ourselves and give an understanding of what we do and maybe more to the point what we don't do to, okay. um, to the general public. Anyway. I'm curious about, you know, if if specialist media can do this and do it well and show all the nuances and represent some of this, mm-hmm. isn't there just a, you know, why is mainstream media on the whole so different? Why can't we see more specialist journalism in the mainstream that enables the, you know, the public to 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 see the fuller picture? I, I don't know. I, wow. I'm not fully there with the solution. I've do got you a conspiracy theory. <laughs> to what I can, not a conspiracy theory, no, no. How about, I love conspiracy theories. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, that, that was about that other matter that I won't talk on this one podcast about that we talked about before, the other thing I was doing. Um, okay. Sorry, okay. Go, on, go, on, go on, go on, go on, go on. Develop your point. So for, yeah, okay. So, yeah, so we've got, we've got this pendulum swing towards 
you know, these the professionals are to blame. And it goes into name and shame. It might go into quoting salaries. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's no wonder <laughs> that these organisations are contracting around a, a tragedy instead of saying, okay, we're going to empower our workforce. Mm-hmm. And I just know that this could be better. You know, is it about that we would start to report on care proceedings because that shows more of a picture of what goes on more often? And then I have my, I have my doubts about whether we could anonymise properly and and enough if if we did that. Well, that's the big thing: the, the the confusion that there is in local authorities, and you're putting your finger on it, I think, between confidentiality and secrecy. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I like I, it I, when you talk I, about that. Well, I'm I'm of the belief that there are plenty of things, good things well-done things by social workers and others in the care professions um, that aren't reported on and therefore people fail to get an opportunity to have a balanced view of things when anything happens to go wrong. And we only see that what goes wrong because it's usually associated with criminality. So, I mean, so that every single day the court reporter you know, bungs out all sorts of intimate details of what's going on and who did said about what. And the picture that immediately gets built up, whether we like it or not, is that somebody messed up, somebody did wrong, somebody in one of the professions. Now, it couldn't possibly be usually a doctor, could it? Or it couldn't possibly usually be a policeman. So, I mean, social workers, yeah, they've got history, haven't they? They have. So, but mm. so the, the 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 dilemma we we then have then is how do the good news stories get out? Because those who have a positive experience with a social worker are less likely to leave a review like they do in a re- when they've had a, a good meal in a restaurant. So, how do we get there, David? We ask them. That's number one. You know. Yeah. Yeah, we'd be open with it. We actually, or somebody does when they're they're leaving, and if if somebody's leaving care, that's a big deal. And there's probably if if all all's gone well, which we always hope, there's some kind of celebration or some kind of party and moving on, kind of transients, you know, whatever. But at the same time, we can also encourage frontline staff who want to, and there will be a few talk to the media about their own, about some of their own work that doesn't break anybody's confidentiality or somebody who's over 18 and totally compassmentous, et cetera, you know, and says, yeah, tell my story. Fine. You know, what's wrong with that? And, and we so- know that's doable because we see it in the specialist <laughs> media, but mm-hmm. we don't see it in the mainstream. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's possible. And they can talk to a couple of local journalists. They can talk to a local free radio station. They can talk to the local free newspaper. You know, whoever. People will see it. That's where people get their opinions, 99% of them in the media of some kind, whether it's written, broadcast, or social. I mean, somewhere, that's where they get opinions. So effectively, we've got to be in that shop window. We've got to be there offering our point of view. And I think that would help balance things a lot. I agree. But I I suppose what's in the back of my mind is, does that compete well against 
you know, is it a good headline? Is that going to compete against the, the you know the the horror of the most shocking child protection tragedy? I think I you know I I'm reflecting on it as we speak, mm-hmm. and I don't see why it couldn't. Listen, I've been part of a program. I told you about that one. Done with BBC Wales. If you remember, yes. right? Yeah. That to do with the boy, that death of the boy in the, during the war. And that yes. provoked a lot of things happening, you know? I mean, it actually grabbed the nation and, and the media, you know, were, were all over it, of course. But in these days, of course, you know, communication was a bit slower. But effectively, it's an example of, of how things can change uh, after a single event. And there have been lots of single events that have been highlighted in the media. These are the ones we talked about that had the big kind of criminality involved with them and things like that. But the thing is that today, any day, whatever day anybody's listening to this, there are about at least 50,000 children in England and Wales who are considered to be at risk from the people looking after them. And social social worker, sorry, John? That's an enormous number. Yes. Well, and social workers, as well as police officers, health workers, education, etc. But people are working to interrupt any risk that was happening and try and rebalance things and improve the quality of that child's life. Um, that's what they do. And, you know, 99% of what they do seems to be working. They've got far too much to do. That's Okay. But what I mean is that the, the, the tragedies that then occur, people take as if that's all that they were ever doing, that one case or that two or whatever. So I think balance is quite important. You know, there's no excuse for any bad practice. No, I, I'm quite strong about that. But, um, you know, there needs to be the balance. Is that okay with you, Donna? Is that how you feel as well? Well, look, let, we're moving on here because I want to talk about yourself. Um, and the future in the world of reviews, yeah? So um, yeah. Let, let's speculate a little. Let, well, why you speculate a bit. Come on. Challenges? Um, what sort of things, firstly, do you see as things that are not so smooth in the future? Sure. Well, I think a great opportunity is the rapid review. So these, re- these are done in a really short amount of time, and they will, I think they will have the effect of making the review based on a much more succinct set of questions. And hopefully what that will do is remove these, remove the need for these lengthy, detail-filled overview reports, which in my opinion, well, they contravene a family rights perspective, to be honest, with the amount of detail that's sometimes out there um, in, the, in the public arena. You know, some research looked at one in it was it offered up a, a, a weaker report in the in the mm. opinion of the researchers. And I, mm. I can put the link in the show notes. Okay. And it was it was thir- they said this weaker overview report was thirty nine pages long and had a ten page detailed chronology. Now I haven't looked at that report, but surely you know we get into all sorts of tricky areas where we were writing reports with that much pack. The whole thing I think could be far less of a uh, okay, but not too short, not, 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 not headliney, really. You know, you, you would recommend still a kind of a much shorter version, but, you know, it would certainly be substantial enough. 
Yeah, less storytelling, more learning, mm. okay. I think. Mm. Okay, please, go um, so on. I like... what, what other things are, would you suggest? Okay, so recommendations, that's something that I love mm. to talk about and could probably talk about for far too long, but I think they should be fewer in number. I think they should be backed by a clear action plan more often, and I think that there should be much more thought about what the robust arrangements are for their implementation. Okay. I'm really worried about this training recommendation that crops up all the time. And I think it needs a lot more thought. Mm. I think it places an enormous amount of responsibility on the frontline practitioner who's, you know, we imagine that every single piece of training we do will be recalled and implemented every day out there. And I, I think that we should be thinking more about partnerships as this hub of information that the practitioner can go to when they need to, to um, you know, understand more rather than placing so much burden on training and the front line. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, that's interesting. I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that in 2021, over a third of children's reviews didn't include the family's voice. I'm not sure why that's happening, and I think that needs to be understood. You know, did they Do you mean the, the family the or the child and the family? The family. I think that when they talk about the family voice, I think they're including the child. So, right. you know, did they include the family in the review and they've forgotten to sort of mention it? In the, it's not being included in the overview report. Why Why is that happening in children's reviews? I, that, that's worrying that's, me. That is a worrying one, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, you know, I, I'm really strong on the fact that we should be learning from strong practice much more, and I think we should be engaging with the practitioner much more. That those those are the underlying principles of of what I think we should be doing more of going forward. Okay, now we've got a national panel now, haven't we? That uh, has a certain yeah. role, and to my mind, I know it's been around for a bit, but it still seems to be bedding in. I don't know if that's everybody's opinion, but I mean, it just seems to be a bit that way still. But um, how? What, what's the impact uh, that you've seen in terms of, you know, the requests for your help? Uh, I mean, have you got enough numbers or are there more reviewers needed? What's the situation? So in terms of the national panel, I think we have the most interactive situation that we've had up to now i think mm -hmm. that's really positive okay. i think they're spread quite thinly um i think they try to get out to as many events and as many partnerships as they possibly can but that's a big task mm -hmm. i'm really optimistic about the child safeguarding practice review panel david i think they can develop in many many ways and they give a lot of um advice to partnerships when when they publish reviews um but in terms of silt's reach you know, I feel it's really important for partnerships, more partnerships to train. At the oh, moment, we have a, on each cohort of training, we'll have a mix between some individuals and some partnerships. And I think that's good cross-fertilization of ideas. You know, I, I would love to see, you know, 25 partnerships trained in the SILT method. I think that we could create so much positive impact then. What's the background of those that have trained um... I mean, have they come from many different backgrounds or, or roughly similar? Or how has it been? So they are safeguarding professionals and they're working at management level. So it's generally from a health organisation, a social work background or police. Mm -hmm. And then there's, a, there's a, a couple of us who are lawyers. Mm -hmm. 
So it's, it's quite a spread then. Yeah, that's what yeah. I hoped for because, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, um, there's so much sort of interchange in the, in the frontline sort of um, safeguarding professionals these days, you know, that they actually sort of almost sort of absorb like osmosis, you know, some of some of each other's jobs or, or, or actual thinking. I agree. And um, the more that they understand each other's challenges, no, absolutely. Listen, Donna, we're coming to the last uh, two or three like, minutes, right? Sure. I want you to finish with um, sort of like a message, if you like, about something, either sum up what you said, or if you have other things that you wanted to say, at least get an opportunity to. So, you know, um, what sort of message would you like to give to people coming in to the profession today? Because I've got to say, the other day, I did a two-hour session with London Metropolitan University, the first years, um, and that was great. Um, but what what do you see in terms of people coming through, and what messages would you like to give them? I would love to give the message that, um, you know, to to be proud of your profession and to use your platforms, use your voice to um, speak as widely as you can about what you do. I think I've spent far too many years hoping somebody didn't quite ask for the nuts and bolts of what I did, David, because of perception of that. I don't know if you have. Um, And for me, that feels like a waste. Um, Yeah, I I guess that would be my message. All right. No, but I mean, that's quite powerful. I mean, I think, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of expectation, if you like, on the new kind of um, qualified social workers coming through. I mean, there's obviously the whole kind of technological kind of expectations as well as the sort of social skills. Um, and I just hope that we don't lose too much of the kind of person to person stuff, because that is real tragedy and also it's corruption of the of the job, I think. I agree. And then once once a person loses that satisfaction from what they thought the role would mm. be, then we've really mm. lost those that spirit, haven't we? Well, um, absolutely. So I, yeah. I guess yeah. that I I see that across the three the three main professions who come to the training with me and um yeah, that would be my my concern too. I mean, we've, the pandemic as well has created even more remoteness, hasn't it? Than uh, you know, we, we've become much more reliant on virtual means of engaging and things. So yeah, that person to person, being around families is something that we we mustn't lose. Okay, Donna. Well, look, it's been a delight having you on the program. Thank you very much indeed for your company. Um, as I said to people. Uh, and you can give me anything else that you've got there that at um, on the front page, show notes as you call them, the, they will be there. And all Fantastic. the way of getting in touch with Donna and her company and anything else that we've probably talked about will be there. And we will be along with you again soon now that winter break's over and we're getting some sunshine. And Ash, I'm back as usual and regular. So thank you for your company. Thanks for the opportunity, David.